Thank you for tuning into our podcast, History's Top 3, brought to you by the History Department of the United States Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we'll discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. Our goal is to explore the varied landscapes and seascapes of the past, in the hope of shedding some light on how the present world came to be. In the studio today are our three co-hosts, Professor Ernie Tucker, Professor Lori Bogle, and Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox. All of us are instructors and lifelong students of history. Today, we'll be discussing the top three most influential American women of the 20th century. Each co-host will offer a few contenders for the list, and then after everyone's had their say, we'll narrow the list down to three. All right, folks, let's hear your nomination. Okay, Andy, thank you. I'm going to nominate as my first choice Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean in 1932 and became a pioneer of aviation in many aspects. She began flying in 1920, and by 1928, eight years later, she had made quite a name for herself as the first woman to fly as a passenger across the Atlantic. This feat, just after Lindbergh's 1927 crossing, catapulted her to great fame, which she exploited to promote the beginnings of commercial aviation with a regional New York to Washington line that later evolved into the giant TWA, the global airline. In 1931, she set an altitude record of 18,415 feet flying in an autogyro, a primitive version of the modern helicopter. Earhart became very active in promoting women's participation in aviation. Also in 1931, she married the prominent publisher George Putnam, but established ground rules for the marriage that reflected her pronounced sense of independence. She wrote a letter to Putnam on their wedding day that underscored this, quote, I may have to keep some place where I can go to be by myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage, unquote. In 1932, Earhart made a solo trip across the Atlantic to equal Lindbergh's, for which the U.S. Congress awarded her the Distinguished Flying Cross. Not resting on any laurels, though, she made other important flights. These included the first solo aviation voyage from Hawaii to California, during the last part of which she was so relaxed that she was able to listen to opera on the radio. This all led up to her attempt to become the first woman to circumnavigate the globe in an airplane in 1937. Although she flew 22,000 of the 35,000-mile journey, her plane mysteriously vanished over the Pacific somewhere beyond. Her fate, still undetermined, has been the object of many search missions since then. She remains an iconic pioneer of women in aviation and the inspiration for many female pilots around the world. And Ernie, I think that's a great nomination for this competition. And I think she meets an interesting example of the new woman of the 1890s merged with the flappers of the 1920s. Because the new women of the 1890s were trying to live their lives autonomous from marriage necessarily and able to earn their own living. But they all had a social consciousness that they were trying to communicate, and she seems to do that. At the same time, she also kind of is in the camp of the flappers of the 1920s that had a devil-may-care attitude and didn't seem to have as much of a social consciousness, at least as far as the public was concerned about flappers, the stereotype. And 
they would do very dangerous things like walk on ledges of, of tall buildings just to show that they did not care, that they were almost a manliness about them for that time period. So she seems to combi combine the both, so I think it's an excellent nomination. Well, thanks, Laurie. I think you really hit the, the nail on the head with her. One of the tragedies of Amelia Earhart, I believe, is that she really did die so young, relatively speaking. So she didn't have a chance to really be like the older <laughs> Amelia Earhart that perhaps some of the other people on this list did. But it's, a, it's an amazing uh, whirlwind of a story for as long as it went. I think it really speaks to how much Earhart is a, a culture, has a cultural influence beyond her own accomplishments, which are many and, and quite amazing and respectable. Um, but for me, Earhart strikes me on this list as someone who makes her accomplishments and then after her tragic disappearance and death, remains this this icon, this role model uh, for not just what she did, but like what she stood for and how she did it and uh, all, all sorts of kind of cultural touchstones that became important for, for women and for Americans. Yeah, paradoxically, you know, to turn what I said before around, her death made her reputation and uh, story and fame grow th that much larger. All right, next, Lori, who would you like to nominate? Well, while I think Ernie had an excellent nomination, mine is far better. So I'm sorry about that, Ernie, but I'm nominating Margaret Sanger. And while she was born in the 19th century, most of her accomplishments happened in the early 20th century, so I do believe that she deserves to be considered she worked, uh, as many people already know, she worked tirelessly to legalize birth control information, but also the devices that would be, could be used for birth control. And she did so not just for white women, as is often portrayed, but for black women as well. And she came of age during the time of the Comstock legislations, which was federal laws that said that it was illegal to possess even birth control devices or to communicate with uh, people birth control information through the mail. So because of that, uh, she was a nurse practicing in the uh, low-income low area with new immigrant neighborhoods, and she saw that women were being overwhelmed by pregnancies and had often resorted to back-alley abortions in order to have less children. So she was anti-abortion from most of the literature that I see, but what she thought could be done is to provide birth control for women so they wouldn't have to resort to an abortion. So with that, uh, she started to get herself arrested on purpose, put herself out there to make her cause better known. She communicated with scholars around the world, uh, manufacturers of birth control devices. She opened the first birth control clinic where she was arrested for that. And she worked really hard to get the information in the hands of women. She faced opposition from leading progressives, including Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt and other progressives would not have necessarily been against black women getting birth control information, that that would have been okay. <laughs> but what they really were upset about is something that Roosevelt called race suicide and his feeling that white women were using birth control in order to, to limit the size of their families and over time that the white race would be overcome by darker skinned people. She was more enlightened about race than Roosevelt was, even though she did align with eugenics, which was the science of the day about the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon Protestant white race, as they called it, which race was used very loosely to mean members of a group. 
she would align with those groups sometimes if they went ahead and advocated for birth control. So I think she's worthy of this. She worked throughout her life. She died quite old in the 1960s. She was working on funding for the birth control pill. And because of her dedication to this issue throughout her life, I think she deserves the honor of being the, the, one of the most influential women in America. Laura, that's really a, a fascinating story that you've told. I have also heard that Margaret Sanger had some kind of relationship, or so it was told, with the Ku Klux Klan. And that, of course, is a complicated uh, organization in our national history. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Right. That's really an interesting part of the story because the Klan of the 1920s is the second edition, you could say, of the Klan. And it advertised itself as a moral organization, and it was anti-prostitution, anti-abortion, anti-adultery, also anti-black, anti-new immigrant, anti-Jewish, but the more moral part of it was very popular. So it wasn't only people like Margaret Sanger that would align with them in the 1920s, but it was also mayors of small towns in the Midwest. Even some people think President Wilson had some connection to the Klan at that point. Well, he dies, you know, right before the 1920s. So I think she, she makes sense in the context of her time. Some historians have criticized her and said that she had a Negro project, as it was called, and that they were giving birth control information to blacks in order to limit the size of the black population. But modern scholars are now saying that that's incorrect, depending on which scholar you listen to. And they say that instead she was working to get the information to all groups, white and black, and that it was important to her that all people have the same information and not be by race, only white women getting it. But she's advanced on race in some ways in that she saw individuals having fitness rather than you prove your fitness by your individual life rather than by the race determining how fit you are for society, which was making her a moderate in some ways. So along the lines, Lori, of, of complicated heroes, is there any reassessment or, or of modern feminism or modern historians looking back at Sanger that's worth comment or reflection on for this? Yeah, Sanger presents a problem for modern day politics, I think you could say even, because Planned Parenthood, who she founded the organization that led to Planned Parenthood, has distanced themselves from her, removing some statues and different things because of her connection to eugenics. And again, as I said before, uh, she would align with groups that believed in birth control, and eugenics did believe in birth control, the more moderate eugenicists. Those that were more radical believed in forced sterilization. I don't see any evidence that she began that way, but over time she started to lean a little bit more toward forced sterilization of undesirables, as they called them. So it makes sense that Planned Parenthood would be uncomfortable with it, but as far as feminism is concerned, it would be hard to find anybody else that was foundational as much as Margaret Sanger. There's some people in the 19th century, of course, that started the women's rights movement, but when you get to the 20th century, all women that came after that did remarkable things, in part, have to give a uh, thanks to Margaret Sanger for making it possible for them to plan their lives out a little better than just having their lives determined by the number of children they have. So for that reason, I think there is a mixed reaction among feminists. They're a little uncomfortable with the race issue, which the people we're talking about were people of their day, and they had beliefs that people of the day had. But 
despite that, I think she would be a rather a moderate rather than a radical on those issues. And definitely contributed to basically setting the, the rest of the stage for feminism to come. Yeah, I think so. Well, then it's my turn for my first nominee. And it's hard to pick a single most important woman from the modern American civil rights movement, but this was where my mind first went for this lineup. And Dorothy Height was an American civil rights leader for both African Americans and women through most of the 20th century. She was politically active in high school against lynching, and she earned her master's degree at New York University in 1932 after she'd been denied at Barnard College because they told her upon showing up that they had filled their quota. Uh, so while working as a social worker at the Harlem YWCA, she met both Mary McLeod Bethune, who founded the National Council of Negro Women, or NCNW, and Eleanor Roosevelt when they visited her facility. And that started a long career of coalition building. Height went on to integrate all the YWCA centers by the mid-1940s and became president of the NCNW and founded the Center for Racial Justice. She developed national programs to combat problems like teen pregnancy and poor nutrition and organized voter drives and civil rights organizations. All through the 1950s and 1960s, she was one of the leading figures of the civil rights movement, working alongside figures in the big six, like Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkins and A. Philip Randolph, etc., on almost all the major civil and human rights campaigns of that movement. She was one of the organizers of the 1963 March on Washington, and she stood next to Martin Luther King during his I Have a Dream speech. Now, the experience of not being invited to talk at that march, despite her skill as an orator, helped shift her to fight for women's rights and education and family values and combating poverty going forward. She continued to run the NCNW for two decades until 1977 and remained on the board until her death in 2010. She was nationally recognized for her many contributions to society, and she received both the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal, and the New York Times called her, quote, the godmother of the civil rights movement. Her book, Open Wide, the Freedom Gates, was published in 2003, and I had a hard time thinking of anyone else more deserving of the nomination than her. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating, Andy, and I think she definitely seems to have been right at, at all the moments of true civil rights history. What I wonder about is, you know, there are there were African-American women who, who were recognized. I think of Rosa Parks as kind of this iconic figure. Was it just her personality or her style? Or what was it that, that led uh, Dorothy to be sort of always behind the scenes so much? I mean, it's because there are other women. The issue is that there are other women who were not, who, who, are, who are known. Yeah, indeed. And it seems that height was comfortable with her role as it was and the and the lack of recognition to an extent um, by choice in some ways. Now, um, she never got the reputation of being a radical or a militant uh, civil rights activist, and she didn't receive as much attention as certainly as history thinks she deserved, um, in part because the civil rights movement at the time was dominated by so many men. But it's notable uh, that she commented more than once that fighting over credit for the movement was secondary to achieving her goals. But Andy, you do say that she was discouraged by the fact that they wouldn't allow her to speak despite her great skills, right? Yes. So there is some, despite that quote, she does recognize that she wasn't being treated equally 
and there is some resentment of some kind there. Would you agree? I think she is in some ways emblematic of the tensions that lead to fracturing in the greater civil rights movement through the 50s into the 60s that we see through all the other organizations of note, like SNCC and those sorts of things. Um, the New York Times seems to have it right, though, don't they? The godmother of the civil rights movement really captures her influence, but as someone that inspirational not necessarily the founder of things, but... I agree. When I found out about Dorothy Height, what struck me so much is how she is continually connecting and enabling and assisting all of these other major figures together and advising them. She was she was sought out for her, the advice and help by lots of the major figures, all the way from W.B. Du Bois through Martin Luther King and beyond in there. She strikes me as the thread connecting a lot of these disparate elements of the civil rights movement together. Or the glue that held them together. Indeed. And, and for that, I think she is essential. All right, back at the top of the horn. Ernie, cue us up for round two. Who's your nominee? Thank you so much, Andy. Um, my second person that I wanted to bring out was Helen Keller, one of the greatest human rights crusaders of the 20th century. After becoming deaf and blind before she was two years old, Keller went on to receive a BA from Radcliffe College of Harvard University and to write 14 books. She was a tireless advocate, not only for the rights of the disabled, but also for women's rights and for the just treatment of ethnic minorities in the US and worldwide. For 50 years, beginning at the age of seven in the year 1887, Keller was aided by Anne Sullivan, who had originally been her teacher at a school for the blind in Boston. After graduating from college at the age of 24 in 1904, Keller began touring the country as an inspiring champion of human rights. This continued for virtually the rest of her life, despite the fact that she outlived several of her companions and caregivers. Keller, interestingly, was politically quite left-wing, and a faithful supporter of the erstwhile Eugene V. Debs, the perennial socialist candidate for U.S. president who was in, stood for presidency in five elections. She remained a staunch pacifist who helped found the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, in 1920. Simultaneously, she maintained a strong Christian faith and was a diligent student of theology. Keller met every U.S. president from Grover Cleveland to Lyndon B. Johnson, who awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964. Over the decades, Helen Keller traveled widely across the globe to give lectures and make appearances in support of the disabled and powerless. Well, Ernie, there's no doubt that Helen Keller was very influential in the treatment of handicap, but there is some information that she was a supporter of infanticide for disabled babies. Yeah, it's, it is kind of weird, Laurie, that I know that she had sort of said things about that. And it seems, you know, really out of character. And I think that there's a lot of debate uh, in the expert opinion about what that really all meant. Um, I guess the, the way to, to frame that would be to say that she really was a woman of her time and that there were all these ideas about, you know, uh, how to properly treat people of certain classes, certain groups, 
Um, I, I don't think that can really be excused. I, I guess one, what one could say is that her contributions in just uh, making uh, people of her type visible, just that alone, just the visibility uh, makes her an incredibly attractive candidate to, to be considered for her accomplishments. All of the historical context not being neglected, though. You know, Keller's story in the public mind for a long time is focused mostly on her struggles with disability rather than her accomplishments. I can tell you growing up, that's certainly what I knew about the story of Helen Keller is her struggles with being blind and deaf and learning how to talk and read and all of that. How much do you think is due to the popularity of her story and the way it's presented in you know books and musicals and such that it tends to overshadow all of these remarkable accomplishments and activities? I think that's a really good point, Andy. I think that, that that's, you know, that's a, a problem that I think also faced my first nominee, Amelia Earhart, that sort of the, the, the being framed by the media and framed by her story in a way. And I don't know quite what the remedy for that would be, but I think that uh, she definitely deserves a, a much fuller look and a much fuller um, a view in terms of all that she did accomplish over an extremely long life in the end, uh, as we said. Uh, but I think that's a, a really interesting and good point. Lori, who's your second nominee? My next nominee is Betty Friedan, who is the best-selling author of the iconic book, The Feminine Mystique. She wrote other books during her lifetime, but the first one that she wrote is the main one that I believe deserves some kind of recognition for being so influential because she put to words what many women were feeling. I took this as a personal nomination in many ways because I found it very inspirational to myself when I read her work. So I, that's why I've nominated her. Some people say that she sparked the modern feminist movement. I do think that she was very important in that. There are other women that were involved in sparking that as well, but definitely she played a major role. Her life story is what makes her influential. She had decided on an academic career, therefore that's why I feel some kinship with her. And she was, at, uh, she was working in psychology and graduated summa cum laude from Smith College. She was also engaged at the time, and her fiancé slash husband did not want her to continue with graduate school. So even though that was her desire, she decided that it was best for her to raise a family and stay at home and support him in his career while working part-time as a journalist. So she did that, and along with many other of her uh, fellow students at Smith College had done the same thing. She did part-time work as a reporter, and she went to a class reunion. She was looking for topics to work on. And when she was talking to her classmates, she realized that they all spoke of a general anxiety, depression that they had since they stayed home. So it, she recognized that in herself, so she, she decided to put down in words what she felt, and she called it the problem without a name. And whether or not there are more important works on feminism and the theory of feminism, I'm sure there are. But she captured the emotion of a time period, and people identified with that statement, a, a problem without a name. And it's inspired them to try to seek other fulfillment just besides just staying home with their children. Now, many women choose to do that, and that's fine. But those that, that want to do more, they found inspiration in her work. While she went on to co-found and lead the National Organization of Women now, uh, and that they fought for women's rights, some argue that her greatest contribution was not 
the organization of now. It's not that she was nominated and indoctrinated into the National Women's Hall of Fame. It's not all the honorary doctorates that she received and other numerous rewards. Her most influential contribution was this angry tone that she had in the feminine mystique where she refused to accept what society had dictated for her. So that's the reason why I have nominated her for this honor. You know, I remember being assigned to read The Feminine Mystique in grad school, which is a testament to its personal experience and widespread influence and enduring message. But I also recall during class and afterward how later waves of feminism have distanced themselves from Fridan, particularly over LGBTQ plus issues. And the movement has become incredibly complex and fragmented since Fridan's day. How should we think of Fridan in modern feminism? She, she cannot be considered a radical feminist in any way. She was a moderate. She saw the younger generation inspired by her, but she was dismayed by their adoption of lesbians within the leadership of the movement. So there's no doubt that there is a problem there. From the beginning? From the beginning, the feminists did not really embrace lesbianism openly until it became more prominent in the 1980s and 1990s, and she felt herself out of step. She called the new, new younger feminists man-haters, and so that could show you why they would be distanced from her. But despite that, it's the original book that inspired so many people to consider to, uh, living their lives in a different way that I think she deserves to be remembered. I wonder if, uh, you know, in that sort of reaction to her, is there any, any kind of a, a, a soupçon, if you will, of ageism? Is there any kind of a, you know, is, is, is that a, a sort of something that could be... On her side? On, on the side of those critiquing her, in a way. Well, I guess that's the problem we face as historians with all figures, that we want to judge them by our, our thoughts for today. And so in that case, she's out of step, mm -hmm. very much so. But if you go back to the 1960s, she fits right at the cutting edge of feminism. Right. And again, all these figures we've been talking about are women of their times very much, including Betty Friedan. So thank you. Well, for my second nominee, I looked at Rachel Carson, who was an ecologist before that field of science even had a name. Um, she grew up as a child in rural Pennsylvania. She explored and wrote about the natural wilderness around her. She was a natural writer and always loved writing about nature specifically. She went to college and switched majors to biology, and she went on to graduate study at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in 1929, which was unheard of for a woman at the time. She worked for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries for decades, eventually becoming their editor-in-chief of all publications and congressional testimonies. Her most famous book, though, was Silent Spring, published in June of 1962, and it catapulted her to international fame, and it also had the most lasting effects. It focused in minute detail on the dangerous effects of chemical pesticides, both on the ecosystems and on humans living around them. And by doing so, Carson raised really tough questions about shady corporate practices and the assumption of human domination of nature, and the course of scientific progress in general. The pesticide industry mounted a furious public smear campaign to discredit her and her work, and she had to testify before Congress about the pesticide use and its effects. And she only died of breast cancer two years after Silent Spring was published, but her work was ultimately validated. The pesticide DDT and others were banned. Her efforts kickstarted the modern environmental movement, and she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom posthumously in 1980. Absolutely stunning story. 
I mean, I guess the one is tempted to ask what 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 might she have done in the current uh, uh, intensity of, of of feeling and debate and discussion over global warming? You know, and that, was there any is there any kind of anticipation of that great? discussion or that's that's pushing it too far forward into the future sure but i think we can at least look back at what else she had accomplished and maybe interpolate a little bit carson was a well-received published author and naturalist all through the 1940s and 50s um she had several books before silent spring detailing observations of the ocean and coastal areas she was without a doubt among the most popular nature writers by the time silent spring was published um and what Silent Spring did was galvanize and pull together all these older separated conservationist movements into this single unified ecology-driven movement. She'd already written about other ecological and health problems before, like nuclear radiation and contaminated food, garnering a whole bunch of attention and cultural cachet uh, to the tales of like chemical poisoning. I have no doubt that climate change and global warming would have been at the forefront of her thought had she lived into even as, as late as like the 1980s and 90s. Thanks for joining us for this episode of History's Top 3. We've discussed six nominees for 20th Century Americans' Most Influential Women. We hope you'll join us in the next episode where we'll introduce our final nominees and then debate who among them belongs in the top three influential American women of the 20th century. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History. And our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.